0: Uh, So we uh, today are deviating a little bit from our Roman series that we've been exploring over the last few weeks uh, to take some time to focus uh, each year on what we ought to prioritize as a church. As a church, we have uh, an incredible history. We've got a committed uh, membership and, and an incredible congregation that has sown to this church and brought us to where we are now. Um, but we don't want to be complacent about that. We want to make sure that we are intentional about growing from where we are at. And so that is what we want to focus on a little bit today for just this one week. uh, That uh, is a message that I did this morning in the AM and we'll do again here in the PM. So if you're here in the morning, hopefully not too many surprises, maybe a couple of variations, but we'll wait and see. Um, But tonight is really about discovering what as a church we are going to be stepping into next or what we are going to be prioritizing. Now, I think one of the amazing things that occurs the older you get is the older you get, the more that you have the ability to look back and see how far you have come. You know, it might be that you've been in a job for a fairly long time and you stumble across some sort of documentation you put together early on and you suddenly realize, oh, wow, I definitely wasn't as competent as I thought that I was at the time. Or, or it might be that, you know, you, you, you're a, a tradie or you've got a particular kind of trade in mind and you're doing something now that takes you kind of five minutes where it used to take you like five days to accomplish the same task. And you're like, gee, I've actually come a long way. I know for me, like as a pastor, like this is what God has called me to do, um, I have a kind of a stockpile of my sermons that I've been doing for a very long time. They go all the way back to 2006, um, and so I look back at some of those sermons, and, and as much as they, I, I still believe they are true, I do look back and I kind of go, ooh, I wouldn't probably communicate that in the same way that I did all the way back then as an 18-year-old, Right. Um, or even the other day, I was reflecting uh, at my time at Crossway Baptist Church. Uh, for those who aren't aware, prior to being here at this amazing church in Alice, I was at a mega church down in Melbourne. And I remember going to Crossway, and we'd have several services and thousands of people um, any a given week. And when I first started there, I looked at people preaching from the platform, and I thought, you know what? Um, I here am a lowly youth pastor, but one day, maybe one day, I, I might get an opportunity to preach uh, from that platform. And, um, and lo and behold, after a little while there, uh, someone did tap me on the shoulder and they said, Gavin, we want to give you a go. And this is often the way it is, isn't it? When we think about where we've come from and then where we are now, usually it is people. People who have tapped us on the shoulder or they've taught us something or they've advocated for us in some way. Uh, but at the same time, we were still back then. And, and I almost—I look back at the video of me in my first sermon at Crossair. I can't believe they put me on the platform. One of the reasons being the type of haircut that for some reason I chose to sport at the time. Now, I get it that I was a youth pastor and I might have tried to look cool, but there was absolutely nothing cool about the fact that I was sporting on my head what I would determine would be called a tri-hawk. So that's not like a mohawk where you have one single spike in the middle. This was three very distinct stripes of spikes that went through the middle, one on the side, and another on the other side. And they were long and high. And I look back at that sermon that I did on baptism. I'm like, did no one like think about mentioning to me that this would look weird? You know, like it's just phenomenal that someone still was willing to say, even with that haircut, you can say something. You know, like it's just amazing. But this is often what happens is sometimes, in spite of us, people still get behind us and they push us and they open up opportunities that we would not have if they were not there. And that's what I want to look a little bit at tonight because I want to explore the life and ministry and mission of the Apostle Paul. And there is a reason why we hold the Apostle Paul in such high regard. I mean, incredible mission initiative. Uh, He wrote so many letters that we see in the New Testament. Um, Obviously, God equipped him for this task, and he did phenomenally. But one of the things that we sometimes fail to recognize is that it wasn't always that way. We look back at the life of Paul Saul and we kind of go, wow, he was like the best missionary maybe outside of Jesus, right? But it wasn't always that way. And so I want to return back to his first missional efforts and what we can learn from this. What we discover is, particularly as Christians, we talk about Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys. That's often the language that we adopt. And we say he went here and here and here. But actually, prior to those three missionary journeys, there was another missionary journey he took that we don't highlight so much. And perhaps for good reason. But if you have your Bible with you, or device, feel free to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, because this is what we're going to explore So here we go. It's going to be on the screen as well. So a little bit of background. So uh, Paul, uh, Saul, at the time his name was, he was persecuting Christians, right? He was trying to get them locked up, maybe even killed in some cases. Uh, And then Jesus encounters him on the road uh, to Damascus, and he says, Paul, Saul, at the time, why are you persecuting me? In fact, I'm going to use you uh, to reach a whole bunch of people for me, basically. Uh, And so uh, Paul's blinded by this situation. He heads into Damascus, and then we meet this guy, Ananias, who God is going to use to restore Saul's sight and then commission him for his journey. And so this is where we meet uh, the story. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. So you see this story of, of Saul, Paul, and I'm going to keep mixing his name up because he ultimately does become Paul. But but he's had this encounter with Jesus, right? And he's been blinded. Ananias has been called to kind of commission him and restore his sight and And Saul just gets straight into the action. He's like, hey, I'll spend a couple of days with the disciples in Damascus, but I'm, like, heading into the synagogues. We're going to argue this thing out. I'm going to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, he has this, like, gusto. He has this chutzpah. He has this kind of drive, right, to be this incredible missional person that God has called him to be. And I think for some of us, this is some of the reason why we kind of get, uh, I suppose, paint Paul in such this kind of, apostolic and provocative light because he was just an absolute go-getter. And yet what we're going to discover is that in these early days, just after his conversion and encounter, things don't always go to plan. And so I just want to have a look at his first couple of efforts in the continuation of this passage. It says, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So Saul's going out there, he's doing this missional stuff, he's he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's all well and good, and what's the first thing he comes up against? Good old death threats. You know, nothing to kind of like stop a missional initiative like having your life on the line. And so what we see actually is here in verse 25, his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So somehow there was these other group of people, his followers, and and we don't really get much description around who they are, but they're looking out for this Saul and they know that actually he needs to get out of here. And so they provide a means of protection and provision in that moment. We're just going to pause there and we're going to move on to the next story and come back around. Let's see what happens Next, in this first effort of Saul, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So again, Saul is like, he's getting in on the action. All right, things, you know, the death thing didn't really work out where I was. I'm now heading to Jerusalem, and he rocks up to Jerusalem. He wants to see the disciples, the apostles, and they're just like, ah, no, no. A bit of a closed door, a bit of a closed door to his initiative, and it wasn't until Barnabas stepped up and advocated for him and said, actually, this guy actually is living out what he's saying in a very real way, there was a level of accountability that Barnabas was establishing there, did Paul, Saul, suddenly be able to then move freely about in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord? Now, if you haven't picked up on it yet, there is a bit of a pattern emerging in this first missional effort of Saul. Saul gets out there and he does what he feels like he's called to do, runs into some sort of trouble, and then whether it is followers or believers or Barnabas, some other person has to step in and actually intervene in the circumstance. And we're going to see this again, straight after this. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, back to his hometown. So three times, three times in this same passage, I'm not clicking these verses, this is the continued passage, we see Saul put himself out there in a missional, provocative, empowered way, but then getting into trouble, death threats, closed doors, death threats. And what we see every single time is believers, followers, Barnabas all stepping in to do something to either protect him and provide for him, to advocate for him or keep him accountable, or in this case, the believers gathered together and they learnt about what was happening and together they discerned and gave him some direction. They sent him to Tarsus. And this is like, this is really important language here. They took him down to Caesarea. Like they took him down and sent him off to Tarsus. You almost get this sense of like, there was a sense of Guys, guys, we see what is happening, and and this guy's a bit of a wild card. We need to do something together to give this guy some direction. And so after all these three examples, maybe the next verse shouldn't surprise us. Given that Paul is now in Tarsus, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers, and there's this almost this sense of end scene. <laughs> it's like Saul's been encountered, right? And he's and he, and he you know, he gets his vision back and his missional death threat bail him out. Goes to Jerusalem, closed door. Barnabas bails him out. Saul's having a debate with the Hellenistic Jews. Great believers bail him out. Go back to Tarsus, Saul. That's where we think you need to be, and he will spend the next eight to ten years there. Eight to ten years in Tarsus. See, we read this passage and we kind of go, oh, it feels so kind of immediate, right? But for ten years, Paul would spend time in Tarsus, his hometown, before Barnabas would come and recruit him for what we would call his first missionary journey. It's quite phenomenal when you actually look at Paul's initial efforts. And it kind of raises this question. Despite Paul, Saul's best intentions and even calling and even empowerment, right, by the Holy Spirit, was there something that was missing in his approach? Was there something missing in the way that he went about this missional initiative with this kind of zeal that he had? I mean, was it just bad luck that he ran into a whole bunch of people who just wanted to kill him all the time? Or was there something else going on? We start to get a little indication as to what perhaps was missing when we actually go to Paul's writings in Galatians. Now, Galatians, uh, the book of the Bible, the letter to the church in Galatia is considered to be uh, the earliest, perhaps most most, uh, academics would argue it is the earliest writing of uh, Paul. And we actually get from Paul's perspective what was taking place at this very same time that we have just been reading. Note these words in Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to go from verse 15 through to 20. This is what Paul himself says. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, so this is reference to his conversion, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, who's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia. And Sicilia, by the way, is where uh, Tarsus was, right? So that's where that other kind of story connects there. So Paul here in his letter to the Galatian church, what he's trying to do, and the way that we often read this when we read through the book of Galatians, he's trying to assert that his apostleship, that his calling and commission was not by some human authority. This was directly from God, right? That's what he's trying to do with this particular passage. It's like this wasn't human interference. This wasn't because of the power of others. This was just God's calling. But almost ironically, what we see in his writing is is perhaps the very thing that made his first missional ventures so, dare I say, a little bit dysfunctional, a little bit requiring bailing out by the other believers. Because what do we notice here in his own writings? Believe me, he makes it very clear, what I'm writing you is no lie. So from his perspective, this is 100% absolutely true. His perspective was that when God called him, his immediate response was not to consult any human beings, He went, he didn't go to Jerusalem, he didn't get other discernment, he just went straight up into Arabia. It's like, I did this. I did this solo. In God's power, absolutely, but I did this solo. And then, of course, after, you know, three years, I finally got myself to Jerusalem and I didn't hang out with Peter very long, by the way, I just want to make that clear, 15 days. I didn't meet with any of the other disciples, oh, except for James, the Lord's brother, And so while he's trying to make his case for this kind of missional commissioning from God directly, what we actually see is a man who is operating missionally in isolation. Like he chose not to engage with others. He chose not to engage very heavily, even with the disciples, with the apostles, And so when we start to ask the question, so why was this so problematic? Why did the believers perhaps have to keep on bailing him out? What we see is a man who is operating in isolation. And this is a really important thing for us to understand, particularly as those who are seeking to bring kingdom impact and kingdom invitation to whatever place that we have been called. You see, when we operate in isolation, even with power, even with power, our kingdom impact will always be limited. This was true for Saul Paul, right? This is what we see in the text. This is what Paul maybe by accident himself affirms, that when we actually operate in isolation, when we have an idea, maybe even a vision, maybe even a calling, and then we go out and just do it purely in isolation without that sense of spiritual family, without that sense of togetherness, we may make a difference, and I'm sure that we do, but it will always be limited. Now, I want to make a few things clear. In isolation, it doesn't mean that God can't use you. Of course he can, and he does. He already is for many people. But often our impact will be limited and often unsustainable. It's often unsustainable. See, when we actually engage missionally, not only in, uh, in isolation, but actually as a spiritual family, when we get something wrong, we have people to help us grow. When we adopt a trihawk for a sermon, we have someone to come alongside of us and say, hey, maybe consider a different hairstyle. You might appeal to the over 80s. You know, like you've got people who have your back and actually say, maybe there's something you can refine here. Hey, Saul, I know how you like getting into that position where people want to kill you, but it turns out that mission works better when you're alive. You know, like there's sometimes there are people who can actually give us a little bit of an indication, a bit of guidance, a bit of growth that we need in that moment that when we're working in isolation, we simply do not have because we aren't God. We need protection. We need accountability. We need this collective discernment just like Paul did. And this is, I think, really insightful Particularly as a church, uh, we as a church, I'm really proud of our church and the way that we adopt a missional approach to life. I mean, one of the things that you may have stumbled across in the, in the corridor, if you've walked down the hallway, we have on the wall there what we call our mission map, right? And it was about uh, 12 months ago, um, I did a bit of a sermon on, on workers' worship and marketplace for mission. And, and one of the things I challenges us to all consider is where is our primary place of mission? Like where is that place that God has uniquely called us, where he wants us to bring kingdom impact and where he wants us to extend kingdom invitation? Where are those places where we identify our people of peace and say, actually, you know what, maybe God's got an agenda for that person and I'm part of that. And so we got people to take red dots and stick them up all across Alice. And people have them in their homes and people have them in their workplaces and people have them in their sporting clubs. They're all across Alice. And if you've joined us and you've only been here for less than 12 months and you never got to do this, come find me. I'll give you a sticker. You can stick it up on that map, right? Because this is super encouraging. Because this isn't just an aspirational thing. As a church, I'm really proud this is an actual thing. This is what we do. We have people all across Alice, all across all sorts of industries, Partner with God in his mission. And that's what we see. And so I think that actually as a church, we're really great at being on mission every day. We don't always get it right and there's plenty of room to grow, but that is core culture for us. And this isn't just kind of local. We, we do this um, across our nation as well. Um, Soon we're going to have another map on the wall. This is our commissioning map. So if we've got a mission map, we've got a commission map. It's going to be great. But we know Alice Springs is one of these places where people come for a season often and then they get sent, they get commissioned to other parts of Australia and maybe even the world. And as a church, we commission and celebrate that because everyone on mission every day is not Alice-specific. You are a person on mission every day no matter where you find yourself. And so we pray for people and we commission them for what God is calling them to do and who he's calling them to be and where he's calling them to work and play because we believe that God wants them there. And so we're going to have a bit of a map and we send people all across Australia to various parts. And this is encouraging because we are commissioning people all across Australia to partner with God in his mission. That is part of our role here at Alice Springs Baptist Church. Here in the heart of Australia, we don't expect everyone is going to stay. That's not our expectation. But we do expect that whatever gift that they receive while they are here, they will be faithful with where they are being called. right? And so we commission them in that endeavor. And so while I'm really excited because this is kind of our church DNA, we're people on mission every day, we're trying to keep our eyes open for what God wants to open up any week and we're not doing God's stories tonight but this is why we do God's stories right it's like God where are you at work what can I step in and partner with you in the thing is the greater we get at scattering and that is the word we often use here at ASPC the greater we get at scattering right the more we actually have to prioritize gathering and this is part of what our focus is going to be this year the more we scatter, the more we're kind of commissioned as people on mission every day in all these places, actually, the better we get at that, the more effective we get at that, the more we actually need to spend time gathering together. And by this, I don't just mean church services, by the way. Right? What I'm talking about here is what we picked up in Paul's story. He was a guy who was empowered, missional. He was there on the front lines doing amazing things. But the more that he was out there, actually what we see and he will discover over time is the more he needed to gather together. As I was um, preparing this message, I couldn't help but um, there was a game we used to play at Youth Group that just kind of kept coming to mind for me and I couldn't let it go. So I'm going to share it with you because it might be meaningful for you. One of the games we used to play at Youth Group, we used to get these um, big tension bands, which they often use in physiotherapy. They're these thick rubber bands essentially. and you get them in really long lengths. And one of the games we used to play is we'd get carabiners and we'd tie this rubber uh, to the carabiner and we'd hook it onto a really secure fence to make sure it couldn't come off. And then we'd tie the other end to our legs and we'd usually have around eight or maybe even ten bands strapped to our legs and we'd grab a peg in our hand and what we'd have to do is we'd have to walk as far as we could across this grass, right, to the very end and then obviously as the tension got harder and harder you would reach out your upper body would come and you try to slam that peg into the ground at which point your feet would slip out and it would drag you along the ground back to the starting point fantastic game the next person would step up and their goal was to take that peg even further right that was the game and for me this game just stuck in my mind when i think about this idea of scattering and gathering because as much as the strength is required to kind of get out there there is a necessary pull back to the kind of gathered that is required as we continue to be strengthened for that process. This resistance isn't resistance to the mission of God, by the way, you can turn that into a different metaphor, but this resistance is one that actually knows that in order to be strengthened for that scattered purpose, we need to repeat this over and over and over again. And it's not just me hanging out here with my peg and my work, actually what it is, it's needing to come back to the core. Because the more we scatter, the more we must gather. And so for this year, our kind of focus is on this phrase, being together on mission every day. Now, if you've been part of ASBC for a while, you might be joining us online, this might be your first time. One phrase that we use heavily in this place is everyone on mission every day. This is like our mantra. I wanna make this really clear, this does not replace that mantra right? This works in partnership with that mantra. You see, if we were just to take away that everyone on mission every day and replace it with this, there is a risk, right, that then we start thinking only what we do collectively matters, right? And actually, that's not true. God has uniquely placed you and called you to find people of peace, to make disciples, uh, to bring kingdom impact in all those different ways. I don't want us to lose that. But there is a risk that in this kind of individualization of mission, we can become like early Paul saw, where we exist in isolation from the spiritual family that is there to provide provision and protection, to provide accountability and advocacy, to provide discernment and direction, all these things that we see in and through the life of early missional Saul Paul, right? And so there is a power in a sense of togetherness that I believe we need to foster as we support each other in our places of mission. I mean, these kind of characteristics that we pick up in those early chapters of Acts, or those early verses of Acts chapter 9, we see provision and protection. I shared this morning, and I'll share it again. Uh, like recently, I've been having a lot of conversations, and, and this could exist in, across various industries, but this just happens to be one that a lot of conversations have emerged from. People who in the medical field who are working on the front lines, we'll say, right? And, and there's a sense of um, Christians who believe that they are called and empowered by God to be at work within that place. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But they're facing various forms of hostility, whether that is in the form of unsustainable work practices that are essentially exhausting them physically or whether it's, you know, unappreciative clientele. Or whether it might be organisational management that is bullying or whatever it might be. Like, you know the stories and you know your industry and you know the challenges that you're facing. And so I feel for these Christians who are stepping into that place faithfully and obediently. But if they exist in isolation, I have to ask the question, where's the provision and the protection? We pray and God provides some of that. But actually as a spiritual community, as a sense of together, we have a responsibility to provide a level of protection and provision for people within those places and that's just one example because equally we are here to provide advocacy and accountability like we can be the kind of church right where it doesn't require the pastor right or the person with the title to ask us hey, how's your missional initiative going have you been, who's your person of peace that you're praying into who are you looking to reach out to where are you seeing god make a difference These are the kind of conversations that I would love to see cultivated even more between each other. See, accountability can be kind of a scary thing. We're like, oh, accountability, that sounds like challenge. And But actually, as Christians, we know that it is actually best when we have people who are advocating for us and allowing us to and supporting us in our steps of obedience toward God. And so I hope that our home groups and even our congregations, right, can be part of that process. Likewise, for some people, their sense of direction, where is, what is God calling me to do? Who is God calling me to reach? And you know this as well as I do. When we're just in isolation, we're discerning that solo, sometimes we can be a bit self-deceptive. Uh, we can be susceptible to pride and arrogance and, <laughs> and and our past traumas and hurts and all these things can inform that discernment process. This is the power of collective discernment. You get a people around you who you can trust and who are for you and they suddenly know that actually Paul it's better you don't stay in here you probably need 10 years back at home now I'm not going to send you 10 years back to home but this is what we have a responsibility to be a part of each one of us and again I make it clear this doesn't just look like church services. It might be like smaller huddles for theological reflection and coaching and equipping people with skills to be able to discover where God is at work and how he is speaking. We do things like God's stories, which again provide accountability and support and encouragement to each other. And we we pray for people of peace, and we're going to do some collective uh, prayer and fasting in the upcoming weeks, which is really exciting as well. But all of these spaces require a level of vulnerability and the willingness to share openly with each other. You can be a part of this. As a church, we can grow in this. This isn't starting afresh. This is just the next step. This is the next step toward greater levels of kingdom impact here in Alice and across our nation and across the nations of the world. And what I love, by the way, as I kind of start to wrap up, I love how we see this movement, this awareness, this recognition grow in and through the Apostle Paul. Now this is, you need a little bit of attention to detail to identify this, but when you see it, it's really, really cool. You see, in Paul's early letters, Galatians, Thessalonians, some of these early letters, when you get to the end of his letter, he's provided you know, some direction and guidance and, and teaching and that kind of stuff. It's always interesting to note how he signs off. And in these early letters, you'll notice that he signs off with something quite general. You know, God bless you believers. Some kind of kind of collective kind of language in these early letters. But if you suddenly read some of his later letters, Philippians, Romans, directed to churches, right? You suddenly look at the end of his letters and how he signs off and you realize that he doesn't use general terms. He uses specific names, He identifies people's names who are doing really specific things and who have served him in very specific ways. And he mentions them by name, sometimes in big lists. If you look at the end of Romans, he's like, whoa, let's lay this out, right? 20-odd people who I want to name because they have contributed and are contributing to this missional endeavor. And suddenly you see, even through his own letters, the distinction... Between this guy who initially was going solo and suddenly someone, maybe 10, 13, 15 years later, depending on your dating, has matured and suddenly realized that the kind of kingdom impact that God wanted to do through him wasn't just going to be through the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Roman citizen. I mean, don't get me wrong, Paul was like the full package. God chose him for a reason, he was like the guy who was perfectly equipped for the calling that he had, but he still needed others. He still needed other specific people. And so as a church, again, what is our role in this? Well, I would argue that we each need to be the kind of people who are willing to get up at night and lower someone down in a basket so they aren't killed on mission effort number one. Because Paul's missionary endeavor could have changed significantly had those followers not lowered him down. We would have had a much shorter Bible had those followers not chosen to lower this firebrand down. right? And that's part of our role, to get up at night, to see the things that maybe other people don't see, to get around and advocate and protect people who are doing their mission faithfully in wherever God has called them. That is our role. And so what does that mean for each one of us as we wrap this up? Now, if you're fairly new to ASBC and this whole idea of everyone on mission every day is brand new to you and you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's new. Well, that's your homework. You've got to work through that because right? this is who we are. We are all about recognizing that God wants to use every single one of us. He wants to partner with us in his mission of of restoration, forgiveness, wholeness. Like this is what he is calling us to be. And so I encourage you, if you've you've never kind of thought about that, to deep dive into the question of how does God want to use me in my place of work or in the relationships that I have or in the various uh, kind of vocational endeavors that he has called me. But if you are in that headspace, and, and, I, and I say this not believing that we always get this right all the time. I certainly don't, right? But if we're in that headspace where we're like, I know that is my calling and I want to get better at it, uh, but I, but I want to be more impactful and faithful with that commission, then that, that I want to challenge you with this question. Who can you give permission to to ask the kind of questions that matter? Like, who are you going to give permission to to ask you about the people of peace that you have identified? Who are you going to give permission to to ask you, hey, have you been praying about your workplace or about your family or about those circumstances? Because by giving permission, right, you suddenly widen the network. It's no longer everyone on mission every day. Actually, it's a bit more together. You could ask a second person. You could ask a third person. You could do this exploration together and if you do I promise you it will unlock missional potential that simply is not possible when you are working in isolation so maybe it's you need to see your world differently everyone on mission every day but maybe it is that you're there and you need to step into this into this query what does it look like to not do this alone Paul discovered this on his missionary attempt, we'll call it zero. And he got bailed out, and we're very thankful for that. So let's learn from his experience as we discover what it means to do mission together. I'm going to pray, and then we're actually going to transition into a time of communion. um, Because, again, communion as a meal, it's a beautiful meal that just reminds us that we share a unity on that which is, which is common, and that is commitment to Christ. Uh, I love communion because it's, uh, it's accessible to all. <laughs> like, as in, It's not like you have to kind of be top-tier Christian in order to participate in this meal. I mean, the whole point was just to come as you are, this recognition we all need saving, we all need forgiving, we all need Jesus. Part of the meal is a recognition of that. And so between that recognition and the fact that we do this together, I think is a powerful reminder of this same message. So let me pray, and then I'll just guide us in the, in the path of, of, of this meal. Jesus, uh, I want to thank you, God, that we are a church who takes your commission seriously, Lord, and we want to thank you that you are a God who is with us in all these places, Open our eyes to see where you are already at work. Open our eyes to see those people of peace that you are calling us to speak truth into. And God, I especially want to pray for people who right now are feeling isolated. Maybe they're feeling burnt out. And it's not because they haven't been faithful with what you have called them to do, but it's simply because they haven't had that team around them to protect them, to advocate for them to be the kind of people who can offer discernment and direction in those times of need. And so renew their strength, I pray, and raise up people around them. May we as a community be those kind of people who come around them and offer those gifts that are so needed, particularly as we seek to honor you with our time and our energy and our efforts. as we pray. We know that you're good and so whatever you prompt in us is for our good. And so help us to trust you in Jesus name. Amen.